0: You are listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast, where we explore traditional tabletop and live-action role-playing
1: games through the lens of horror. A special thank you to Patreon for helping make this podcast possible. Settle in, thin bloods. Grab a drink and your favorite set of dice, and let the darkness consume you.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to our Gehenna Gaming interviews. Uh, this Tuesday night, we have a special guest, Keith R.A. DeCandido, prolific author of science fiction novels, comics, short stories, and many things in between. Uh, he's written for a magnitude of beloved universes such as Star Trek, Buffy, Spider-Man, X-Men, Firefly, Supernatural, Farscape, Doctor Who, Stargate SG-1, Alien, which is one of our favorites, and Sleepy mm-hmm. Hollow. So so many cool things that like man, I mean, it, my inner 8-year-old if I was like given the uh you look into the future and see the things you're going to be writing, I'd be doing backflips. So you're kind of living like uh,
1: If I, if you told me when I was 8-year-old that I'd be doing this, I'd also have been doing backflips, and yeah. my eight-year-old me would have been thrilled. Yes.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you're thrilled now. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were actually just talking before the stream started that Keith was awarded uh, a really cool title and award for being a, a prolific tie-in novelist. Yeah. The
1: the International Association of Media Tie-in Writers, which was formed in the early 2000s, um, by uh, it was originally founded actually by Max Allen Collins and Lee Goldberg. Uh, to basically because uh, tie-in writers uh, don't, didn't have their own organization. You know, mm-hmm. the science fiction and fantasy writers have one, romance writers have one, mystery writers have one, horror writers have one, and we felt we needed our own organization because we weren't well represented by any of those specifically, especially since tie-ins cover a lot of different genres. Right. Um, and every year, the IAMTW gives out a Lifetime Achievement Award. Um, and for some inexplicable reason, they gave one to me in 2009. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Which which was a huge honor. It was it was it was very flattering. Um, Metal world to, Peace, to have, you know. Just have, wanted to change the name know, up. A my little. Work recognized that way.
0: That's fantastic. Um, so I've got a couple questions for you. Um, okay.
1: I hope I have a couple answers for
0: you. I hope so. Uh, I mean, I'll, I'll talk to you for like an hour. I mean, that's all cool too. Uh, so you've been writing for a long time. Um, yes. At what age do you think that you discovered your passion for writing
1: these cool stories set in these great universes? that would be that would be the age of six um that was when i wrote my first book um it was called reflections in my mirror it was written on construction paper about four or five pieces of construction paper that i folded together um it was terrible because you know i was six (laughs) but um i still have it by the way um that's wow and uh yeah i I keep it around to keep me humble just to remind myself of of how it all started
0: is that lines uh, all over it
1: (laughs) (laughs) no no but (laughs) oh it's tempting um, no, I was raised by librarians and, uh, wow. read to me from a very young age. And then I was giving, and then gave me books to read myself when I was old enough to read on my own. And, um, uh, I've, I've always loved reading and I always wanted to make stories that that desire was always there. So, um, so yeah, it was, uh, it was there from, 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 for, almost, from pretty much as long as I can remember, certainly back to age six. Um, obviously I got a little bit better at it as I got older. Um, and there were other things that that caught my interest here and there. I thought about acting. I thought about, uh, um, well, there was a period there where I really wanted to grow up to be the second baseman for the New York Yankees. Um, (laughs) and I mean, that's uh, a lot of kids in New York. There was, there was a very brief period where I thought it might be cool to be a lawyer. I'm not sure where that came from, but, but, uh, but writing was always a thing I wanted to do. And, um, and I'm really glad I've been able to do
0: it. So are we, um, that's really cool. I, I didn't know that your parents were both librarians. That, yeah, that's fantastic. So, I'm assuming they must have brought home like a ton of different books for you to read. I mean, you said they read to you oh, sure. as well, but you were you were yeah, exposed yeah, from a no, young age to I, a lot of
1: cool things. And and they're they're not only librarians; they're also science fiction fans. So they you know they watched Star Trek when it first aired in in the late '60s, um, and watched it with me in reruns in the '70s when I was growing up. And the books they gave me to read were like. You know, some of the first things that I read myself were The Hobbit and uh, Ursula Le Guin's Earthsea Trilogy wow. and um, uh, Robert Heinlein's YA novels uh, and also P.G. Woodhouse's Jeeves uh, stories, So, uh, which pretty much is me in a nutshell right there. But um, So, yeah, I, I, I got into this stuff very young. Um, so pursuing a career in it was kind of inevitable to avoid, you know,
0: years <laughs> Only that or you're a librarian, right? Uh, well, because you're surrounded by books either way. Um, so as far as your writing career, um, what got you really started in all that? Did you find like um, a paper to write for? Or
1: uh, well, actually, in, in, in both high school and college, I wrote for um, the newspapers and mm-hmm. uh, the pilot which for Cardinal Spelman High School in the Bronx. And then when I, I went to Fordham University and I worked on the paper. Which uh, was the sort of alternative paper, well, not was, it still is the alternative paper at, at Fordham. And um, I wrote for them, I wrote reviews for the art section. And then sophomore year, I was asked to become arts editor. And that was when I kind of discovered editing, um, which was very useful because that gave me something I could do for a living while I waited for my writing to, <laughs> to career to kick off. Um, I worked my way up to executive editor at the paper. Uh, and the paper, by the way, was a Columbia School of Journalism award-winning, uh, paper. It was not like just some thing that that we threw together. It was, it was a really good paper and a really great place to, to learn my craft. Yeah, like um, cut your teeth. Yeah. Yeah. And we, and you know, I got to learn literal cut and paste layout because this was (laughs) the late eighties. So, uh, we, computers were not really a thing yet, at least not on our budget. And, um, actually my senior year, we finally got to do layout on a computer, but even then, uh. Well, we did the typesetting on a computer. We did the layout. Was still cut and paste. Literally. Yeah, I was going
0: to say it probably took you so much time uh, with oh, the yeah. like early computers that it might as well just have been faster to do it manually,
1: yeah. right? Yeah, I'm yeah. sure they all do it. You know, it's it's much more streamlined now. But uh, but it was, it was it was it was great skills to learn, and um, and so then I got a job. I worked for Library Journal magazine out of college as an assistant an editor and then i worked for the late byron price who was a book packager uh, and i was a i was an editor for him for five six years um working on a variety of projects i went freelance in 1998 i would still did some work for byron for a little while for about another year uh and then i struck out completely on my own uh, awesome. basically by then by then i had sold a couple of novels um uh, a bunch of short stories and i felt Confident enough in that, and also I was married to somebody at the time who was making a six-figure salary, which certainly helped. Uh, and with her support uh, and understanding, uh, I embarked on a freelance career, which worked out for the best. I actually made more money the first ten years as a freelancer than I did the prior ten years as an editor. Wow, so uh, that's impressive. So it, it, it worked out okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad it did. Um, did you have any like role models in in writing? I mean, obviously you mentioned The Hobbit earlier and the Earthsea trilogy. Um, people that you read, were there any that like really inspired you to try to follow that dream?
1: Um Ursula Le Guin definitely was one of them. Um not not just from her fiction, but her nonfiction as well. She wrote uh, some amazing essays. Harlan Ellison was an influence, more for his nonfiction than his fiction.
0: Yeah, he's fantastic. Um
1: uh, there were a lot of uh, other writers I really enjoyed um growing up, Alfred Bester. Um a lot of people, uh, another form a lot of writers I particularly admired were a lot of the people writing, uh, comic books in the 1980s that I was reading, uh, Chris Claremont, J.M. DeMattis, oh, yeah. Roger Stern, Bill Mantlo. Um, I'm forgetting some people, but, uh, uh, Tom DeFalco, um, and Louis Simonson, um, a whole bunch, whole bunch of comics writers. I actually
0: love J.M. DeMattis' comic work. Uh, me too. Yeah. All the stuff he did on Spectre, uh, where after Hal Jordan died uh, became yeah. that new era, inc- incarnation was absolutely fantastic. It was really high level concepts, uh, science fiction, metaphysical, yes. kind of like Sandman really. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, DeBattis's work was always uh, among my favorites. I actually picked up uh, the new edition of Moonshadow that that they put out. Oh, um, no way. Is the, the big hardcover that I think Dark Horse put out um, of uh, sort of the definitive collection, which has both, the whole miniseries, as well as the farewell moon shadow follow-up he did for vertigo and uh and a bunch of other material as well and that still holds up as one of my favorite uh comic books ever um
0: i'll have to check that out so yeah
1: a lot of the, those were a lot of the formative influences on my youth
0: well, that's awesome i mean those are all have you ever had a chance to meet harlan ellison before he, he passed oh yeah
1: know? no I, I i actually got to work with harlan uh when i was working for byron wow um, uh he, no, he and I were friends for for a while there. I, we we lost we lost track of each other later on, and unfortunately, I didn't uh, get to see him much before he died. But um, but in the 90s, we uh, when I was working for Byron Price, we we worked on a couple things together. In fact, I have the odd distinction of uh, editing a short story collaboration between Harlan and Robert Silverberg at a time when they weren't speaking to each other. Oh God! <laughs> I mean, those two were were absolutely best friends most of their lives, but. He, after they had accepted the assignment to do this story, they had an argument about something. I don't remember what. I doubt either of them remembered what. Well, it's Harlan,
0: and uh, he's very particular. Yeah,
1: and and yeah, and yeah, Bob doesn't exactly back down from a fight either. <laughs> so, um, the, so yeah, and, and I still had to basically pry this collaboration out of the pair of them. Um, I still number that as one of my most impressive editorial accomplishments in my career. Um but uh but no uh yeah no so i got i one i've gotten to work with a lot of people um when i was working for byron i did a, i edited a series of novels and short story anthologies based on marvel superheroes oh, neat. so we did spider-man novels x-men novels avengers novels and so on um so i got to work with stan lee on those because he wrote the introductions for the anthologies we did. no way um and i also helped uh, there was a novel that stan wrote with stan timmins it came out in 2001 called The Alien Factor, which I actually did most of the plotting on uh, working with Stan. Um, it's got to be a career highlight for you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, my, my favorite Stan Lee story, which I, which I have been telling for years, and I told it a lot right after he died in 2018, um, San Diego Comic-Con in mm, 95, 96, something like that, um, Byron took Stan and his wife Joan out to dinner. And uh, he, it, was, it was the whole staff. So it was you know, me and, and the other two editors who were there, uh, and Byron, and Stan and Joan, and also Byron's uh, wife and nine-year-old daughter, Kara. At the time, she was nine years old. She's obviously yeah. older now. Um, so what, how is Stan spending this business dinner? Is he talking <laughs> business with Byron? No, he is spending the dinner with Kara, playing with the action figures that she bought on the floor that day. That's
0: yeah. That's so adorable it's, and just heartwarming. Like, because yeah, that's the kind of person I mean, you want Stanley to be. But then to exactly, actually see him do that, it's
1: it wasn't. An, that that was the thing working with him and talking to man. him and and seeing him not in public. That wasn't a persona. That yeah. he really was like that. He had the best job in the world, and he knew it, and he was having fun. Yeah, and you could tell he loved it, which is uh, yeah,
0: what really makes everyone happy. To
1: yeah. To just yeah. see
0: him keep going because he, he
1: also, uh, one, one of the things I noticed working with him is that he never missed a deadline. Wow. The, 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 the discipline that basically got him work. I mean, you know, he, he started in the business at a time where they didn't care if it was good. They needed it Tuesday. And, right. uh, he, he was always phenomenally good with that. The only time he ever didn't turn something in on time was when he turned something in early for me. <laughs> uh, that, that's even was, better. Yeah, yeah, it was. He was an absolute joy to work with.
0: That's really cool. I mean, I love that Stanley story too. You could tell it a hundred times. No one's going to ever play because it's yeah. it's so sweet and personable. You know, um, being as diverse as you are in the world of pop culture and uh, geekdom, uh,
1: have you ever played tabletop role playing games? Not for a very long time. Really? Um, I used to a lot At, uh, in high school. Not only did I. Uh, read science fiction novels and read superhero comic books and watch Star Trek and Doctor Who and, and, and that sort of thing. I also played Dungeons and Dragons. I, I hit all the geek checkboxes. There you go. Um, and this was in the 80s when it wasn't actually cool to do any of this stuff. Um, but uh, but I, I, I found my fellow nerds in high school, and, and so we, we, we played D&D. That's, that's where I discovered it, in the Chess and Special Games Club at, at Cardinal Spelman High School. It was originally the chess club, but we never actually played chess. So I mean, you just um, stick a
0: D and D manual in there every now and then. <laughs> Among
1: other things I mean, we played other games, too. but uh, we would play like board games and stuff. Yeah. But so I played, I played a lot of Dungeons and Dragons. We also did the Star Trek role-playing game that FASA did yeah. um, the Doctor Who game, which was also FASA. Um, uh, I played champions once or twice. Uh, there was a game called the wild side uh, role-playing game, which is a fantasy role-playing game that came out uh, in the two thousands. I actually played early versions of that before it was published um and I th- and a couple three others
0: uh I remember there was an early 2000s marvel one and i think the cool rule book had the hulk yeah I, I had bought that that was pretty cool too i'm not sure Yeah, i think we may have played it. i mean
1: i think yeah we did play that a couple of times yeah too. um but i haven't done it much lately just uh, for lack of time more than anything well, i
0: imagine now were you a player or were you like the eternal gm
1: oh i was totally a player yeah, yeah. i i the only time i ever acted as gm was in the doctor who game because um I was playing the doctor in the doctor who game and I wound up dying and I regenerated. So me and the game master switched places. Oh, that's became, super cool. He was the new incarnation. Um, but we only, I only did like three or four campaigns. I just, I didn't enjoy it as much. I, I prefer, excuse me. I preferred playing to, to, yeah. to being the games master, well, but so it was, I mean, it was a fun exercise and I'm glad I did it.
0: Yeah. And it's, you know, you're writing all the time for yeah. a job. Well, this was before
1: uh, my, this was in college. So, that's <laughs> <pretty cool.
0: laughs> um, so yeah, your fan, your parents were fans of the original series. Uh, I yes. used to grow up and watch TNG with my dad as a kid. Really been to the Vegas con? Really? I mean, either. I yeah. wanted to go for a long time.
1: Um, I, partly because I, I, the people who run creation aren't necessarily my favorite people in the world. Um, I've, had, I've heard they I've, 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 I've worked with them in the past yeah. and had a particularly unpleasant experience with them back in 2001 when I was working on Farscape uh, stuff. Um, so I haven't really felt enthused about the idea of, of going back. I was actually thinking about going to Vegas this year, except of course, you know. yeah. um, but, um, but having said that I'm a regular at the shore leave, uh, convention in Baltimore. I've been wanting to um, go for that for, for a while now. And now my kids are old enough. I think I could finally oh, yeah, go out you could have and do them, it. You could have brought them there sooner. The, the number of kids who grew up going to shore leave is Legion. Um, wow. shore leave is a very kid friendly convention. Um, and, and there's lots of other kids there and there's lots of people who have been going since they were kids. Um, you know, uh, but it's, but I, I do that and I do, and I, I do uh, in in a year that doesn't have a pandemic in it. I usually do upwards of 20 conventions a year, you know, both ranging from, you know, big media conventions, Mm -hmm. your dragon cons, your galaxy cons, your, your New York comic cons, uh, down to like big fan run conventions like shore, shore leave and far point and Treklanta and and uh, stuff like that and then um, uh, and then I also do like small literary conventions like, oh, uh, cool. and um, Philcon and uh, heliosphere and uh, so you know I, try, I run the gamut of, of I, I've platforms. heard
0: nothing but good things about shore leave and um, yeah the far one yeah far point our point. Okay, yeah. like yes. an encounter of points what they named it after. Yeah. Uh, those are cool. I mean, uh, geez, I'm just going on a list of questions because we're talking so, like, candidly and we're kind of, like, hitting ones that I've, like, lined up to ask. So I'm like, whoops, scratch that, <laughs> scratch this. Um, <laughs> Star Trek's been one of the series I think you've written for probably the most aside yes. from uh, your own stuff, which you do have a lot of Uh, your own personal ips that you've created and series um what has star trek meant meant to you growing up and even now in your professional career i mean it's obviously got a good place in your heart you're very passionate about it i i
1: i don't ever remember a time when i wasn't watching star trek i i grew up with i I grew up in new york city Mm -hmm. um in in the nineteen seventies, and at the time, uh, one of the local stations, Channel Eleven, which these days is the CW affiliate, but at the time it was an independent station, uh, showed Star Trek every night, at, every weeknight at six six o'clock. Um, that was our day. We would, my parents would come home from work, we would watch Star Trek at six, and then we'd have dinner at seven. That was that was the routine. Yeah. Well, seven thirty really, because they had to cook. But <laughs> uh, but we but watching Star Trek was part of our daily routine um i grew up with kirk spock and mccoy and i would then later on i I would uh read the james blish adaptations um i later would start reading the comic books that uh dc i i don't think i ever actually read the marvel series that came out after the motion picture yeah um I i read back and read them later but i didn't read them at the time um i wasn't really into comics yet i didn't get into comics until around 81 82. And then, but then when I did, I started buying the the, the DC comics that, that came out that Mike W. Barr uh, was writing uh, with Tom Sutton and Ricardo Villagran. Um, so I read, you know, I read, I read the comic books. I read the James Blish novels. I read the Simon & Schuster novels. Um, I saw every movie opening weekend when it came out. Um... I bought all the novelizations, which at the time used to come out before the movie, so I would read them before the movie came oh, out yeah. and get all excited.
0: Um, it used to be really cool was, going to the grocery store and seeing it oh, when yeah. the movie wasn't out yet, and I'd be like,
1: Yoink. Yeah. <laughs>
0: you know, Do I spoil it? Do I not spoil um, it? It's like the
1: and it, and it and it didn't, and then uh, my f- sophomore year of college, freshman year of college, 87 would have been September 87, so that would have been my, yeah, beginning of my sophomore year yeah. of college, was when uh, Next Generation debuted. And, uh, on the same, it was on the same station. It was on channel 11. And, uh, and I, I, I watched it eagerly, you know, thrilled to finally be getting, you know, something besides a new movie every couple of years, maybe. Um, and, uh, and I just continued to, to watch it and devour it and continue to read the comic books, continue to read the novels and always thought, boy, it would be cool to write those novels. Um, and then eventually I got to, so that was nice. Um, Star Trek has always been part of my life in some way or other. You know, it was, it was as a fan throughout my childhood and my college years, uh, I sold my first work of Star Trek fiction the year I turned 30. Wow. Um, so that was, that was, um, I saw in, in 1999 was when I signed the contract to do uh, diplomatic implausibility, which came out in 2001. And also when, uh, Wildstorm hired me to write the perchance to dream comic book, which came out at the end of that year. Um, and then, and before that I had done like bits and pieces of research and cover copy here and there, stuff like that. Um, but then finally, uh, in 99 uh, was, was when the first actual Star Trek work that I, that I wrote came out. Uh, and then it continued to, it's continued to be a part of my writing life since either fiction or in nonfiction. Um, you know, since 2011, I have been writing about Star Trek for Tor.com. Um, yeah with the re-watches, with, especially with the rewatches as well yeah and then and since 2017 i have been reviewing every every episode of the new shows as they come out
0: so that's excellent i've actually um when i started doing a rewatch um because i had a i had a kid in 2010 he's turning 10 this year it's a big deal uh yeah. i started watching uh some of the shows with him even when he was too little to understand what's going on you know yeah. you know gotta gotta get him in that culture um uh, <laughs> but no, I, I ended up seeing that you started doing the uh, the tour series. And it was cool because at the time, I think I was doing my first rewatch of DS9 uh, since it had aired, and it was it was kind of fun to go over some of the episodes that uh, were just like the big ones, and just seeing like oh, I wonder what, what Keith said about it, you know? Because I was reading some of your books at the same time. It was a very cool tie-in for a fan. To see the, the guy that you were reading some of the novels of uh, also doing, like, an episode rewatch. It was fun. And you went on to do uh, Batman 66 and a couple yes. of other uh, fun, like, some of those early shows that are just such a, a staple of American
1: uh, Americana, really. Well, I did, I did Batman 66. I did the Stargate series, which I did seasonally. I didn't well, do fun. episode by episode. And then from 2017 until the beginning of this year, I did um, a superhero movie rewatch. Was that all um, Marvel, or was it DC as well? No, no, no. It was every every live action movie based on a superhero comic. Book. Oh, excellent! So did you chronologically like chronologically or hundred uh, roughly chronologically. Yeah. It was it was I, I grouped them thematically. I didn't go in strict chronological order. Uh, and for the stuff that came out before two thousand, I, I did them in in like pairs and groups. Um, like Superman one, two, and three. I actually did, I wound up doing all four of the Christopher Reeve Superman movies. I was
0: going to say, you four. Uh, yeah, which, which was a mistake. I should have kept
1: it. <laughs> two. Um, that was too much for one, one article. But um, I, I, that was when I was first starting it. Uh, eventually I got to the point, okay, I'm just going to do like no more than two or occasionally three. Like I did all the Blade, uh, I did all three Blade movies in one shot. Um, and then once we hit the 21st century, I did them more individually with each, you know, I, and I did, I but and I did them like r- like I said, roughly chronologically, but in a- appropriate groups. Nice. So, uh, but that was a lot of fun, and I'm going to continue to do that. Like every six months or every year or so, I'm going to like look back on on what had come out already. Um, you know, in June of this year, I, I did a piece that included both Bloodshot and uh, Birds of Prey, as well as one movie I missed the first time through—an adaptation of uh, Faust. Um, oh, the end of this year was originally going to be much uh, more much bigger uh right now the only things i know for sure i'll be covering at the end of this year are new mutants and the old guard um i have
0: yet to see the old guard i've heard nothing but good things
1: it it is quite good Uh, i haven't seen New mutants yet either i'm hoping it comes out on home video before the end of the year i'm gonna cover them in in december and if wonder woman 84 does actually come out christmas which i am skeptical of myself uh i'll cover that too but um uh we'll see but uh Oh, I'll, p- I'll plenty to cover in 2021 for sure
0: oh no doubt when, once everything starts opening back up and we have an influx of nerdy pop culture that has been sitting Indeed. waiting to be released like the floodgates hey, think about it's gonna be like the craziest blockbuster if you think about it right yes because so many things have been held back unfortunately dune i think but there were
1: also sh- things that couldn't get made either so you know yeah you gotta have something to fill in the gap while they make new stuff
0: um do you have a favorite era with star trek
1: not really um yeah, just love it all I, 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 mean, probably the 24th century, just because that's what I've worked the most in. Yep. But uh, they all have their appeal, you know, in different ways. I, I and and what I like, I mean, what I like about Star Trek is is the characterization and the philosophy of it, the, the 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 focus on optimism and compassion. Right.
0: Um.
1: That that is really what Star Trek does best, and that doesn't matter whether you're talking the 22nd, 23rd, or 24th or 32nd century. Um. It's still, it's it's still all good stuff.
0: So yeah, it's still relevant throughout the series. It carries that message of um,
1: just hope, exactly. you
0: know. Yeah. So kind of a curveball question. I don't think I wrote this one down, but I was thinking about it because um, you wrote some of the best, uh, if not some of the only Klingon novels that were really just not only, knocked them out yes. of the park. The IKS Gorkon series, which I believe there was yeah. four books of, at yeah. least um
1: there were three there were three there was there were two novels that had the Gorkon in it diplomatic Impossibility right. and the brave and the bold book two and then there were three iks Gorkon books and then we re we rebranded it as klingon empire because the sales on the third book were kind of lousy <laughs> and, uh, so yes yeah.
0: so i was i was wondering about that um because you still managed to bring in that star trek feel and that star trek ending of um just hope and optimism but you did it with the klingons <laughs> and when I, you know, reading it, I was like, this is so good. This is like very fascinating. The characters are are really great. Um, not to spoil it. They come across a species of alien that is kind of like a match made of heaven for them. Mm-hmm. But they're there to do a job. And it becomes this uh, series of tests between the two of them. Um, fantastic novel series. I recommend anyone to get it. But I, I found it really impressive that you were able to take those almost like we consider them Starfleet ideals. And you've shown how the Klingons are very still human. And they do have honor and things. But in the end, that series ended up with a very end-of-the-episode Star Trek moment where it all kind of wrapped up in a nice little bow. But it worked, right? Um, I hope so. (laughs) I think it absolutely worked. And I don't know if that's something that's remotely... It just seems very difficult with klingons and i was wondering if you could speak about that a little
1: bit well i was trying to portray them as being uh, get into their heads and and you know every everybody is the hero of their own story and everybody thinks their own culture is the better one and and the other ones are weird um and so i was trying to make sure that they were true to being klingons but and I was also trying to you know make it clear that there are different. Not everybody's going to feel the same way. You know, everybody's going to have different interpretations of what honor means, of what uh, what duty means, what uh, what what how exactly they're going to follow the tenets of Calus versus how other people would follow the right. tenets of Calus. Um, honor is a very vague concept, and it it it's very much open to interpretation. And different people are going to have different ideas of what's important. Um, so I was trying to show the different points of view on on different Klingons, but also, you know, as far as they're concerned, they're, they're the center of the universe, just because we always think of ourselves that way. And so I was trying to make sure I stayed in their heads, which is why I try to keep as few, try to keep it completely focused on the Klingon point of view, um, but also on multiple Klingon points of view as well, you know, and, and different people are going to have different attitudes towards things, including, you know, the, the the ground troops are going to be different from the officers who are going to be different from the farmers and who are going to be different from the opera singers, who are going to be different from the generals, you know, and the politicians and the high council. Everyone's going to have a different agenda and point of view.
0: Yeah. I like that even like it showed very clearly that there were some Klingons that the concept of honor was simply how much can you exploit of other civilizations and their resources and bring it back an and then bring it back home and say look how much i got doesn't matter how right aren't i so great when in actuality you had martok and some of the more honorable klingons who actually understood honor they were like eh, you probably shouldn't have gotten it that way you know uh but then again that that creates great drama and that's why we have yeah. Yeah. the house of duras which is just. <laughs> The the hand fisted uh, mustache twirling villains in uh, TNG and uh, in DS9 that we love to hate, right? Yes. <laughs> so, uh, you recently worked on the Klingon Core Rulebook for
1: yes. Um I'd love to hear about that. How you got involved? Uh, basically, I wrote a lot of the uh, a lot of the bits of history, um, uh, the history of the Empire and uh, the Empire's, uh like little reports of how the empire views various other spe- other nations in, in the galaxy. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, I think I wrote the part, uh, listing some of the major houses and some of the minor houses, both past and present. Um, and I wrote some of the sidebars that were in there. I was, I was one of a team. I didn't, I didn't do the whole, book I, right. I didn't do any of the mechanic, the game mechanic stuff. That was, that was all, everything that I did was all basically, uh, history of various sorts. Um, and, it,
0: and it shows that it was given a lot of care and love. And um, I was talking to Jim Johnson uh, from Modiphius yeah, as well. A hired me. Yeah, and he—I've noticed he brings on a lot of the really great Star Trek authors uh, for a lot of their projects, which is really cool. Um, and you could tell that, you know, that level of quality and care was put into it by bringing on people like you. And the sidebars are great.
1: <laughs> oh, that was that was the best part. I, I got to I got to write a song from an opera about the herc invasion (laughs)
0: Um, I mean they're a lot of fun because you're right the history can be a little dry but it's also kind of fun because they have a really wild history but the sidebars I feel like you really got the character of
1: my, my favorite was was one bit I did um which actually worked in a reference to one of the other universes I've worked in 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 the enterprise episode they wanted me to do something about the broken bow incident which was which was from the first episode of enterprise yeah when when the Klingon crashed on earth and That was a
0: great episode. I had right?
1: totally forgotten that uh, Jim Beaver played one of the actors, one of the admirals, um, the one who referred to them as Klingots, and then the <laughs> one of the Vulcans snotily corrected him to Klingon. So I did a memo from that admiral to Admiral Forrest, uh, basically suggesting that they bring in um, Archer to, as he puts it, piss on their shoes a little bit um and at one point i have him basically making a reference to a bunch of idgits which is my joke on the character jim beaver plays in supernatural nice uh, he plays bobby singer on, on supernatural and, and idgits is one of his favorite uh, epithets um and i wasn't sure they let me get away with it but i don't i doubt they even caught it so that's a nice little <laughs> easter egg for, for supernatural fans if they don't get watch
0: it. this episode Motivius. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's too late now. It's already in the book. Uh, <laughs> gotcha. And right? I mean, it's a really subtle reference. Yeah, I mean,
0: it's fun either way. Those fun little Easter eggs uh, in pop culture. Everyone uh loves when you catch them. It becomes a, a bit of fun for everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: um So it's really cool that you were able to kind of get into that. It, how different was and it? Some to of it approach? was stuff.
1: Some of it was stuff I had already. Because I wrote a book that came out in 2014 called The Klingon Art of War. Which yeah. had a lot of uh, various incidents from throughout Klingon history, and I got to make use of some of that also in in uh, in the Modifius uh, material as well. Um,
0: now I know there's been um, I think Dayton did it too. It was like the uh, the Guide to Vulcan. Yeah, to take a traveler's thing. Has there been one for the Klingon universe? Yeah, Dayton did that one too. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Son of a gun. <laughs> I was going to yeah. say because this book feels very much like. Kind of like a guide to the Klingon culture. I mean, yeah, I don't yeah. think there has been a book that big because it's a huge it's oh,
1: like
0: yeah. it's it's the it's a new core rule book, essentially. It's not even like a source book like the, the other Modifia's projects are. It is the core rule book. I mean, you could buy it and then just run the whole thing with it. Um oh, which yeah. is pretty impressive. Uh but I mean that's a lot of Klingon content in one book. Yeah. So what were some of your favorite experiences writing on that project?
1: Um, I've already mentioned like, you know, the, the writing the things. sidebars and 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 that and, and getting to dig into some of the history a little bit. Um it 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 was all fun. I just I, I really enjoy, you know, fleshing out the history and the culture from what we what's been established on screen. Uh, one of the challenges, um, because Modifius' license doesn't cover discovery. So oh. I couldn't mention any of the stuff that has been happening there. Right. Um, I managed to work in basically an oblique reference to various conflicts over the decades. Um, but um, I'm sorry. Our cat is trying to destroy the office. right It now, happens more
0: so. often than you would imagine on, um, on all of our streams.
1: Yeah. Um, that's okay. I think, I think, I think my wife is about to turn one of our cats into a rug. Um, but <laughs> anyway. Um, but yeah, that, that was a bit of a challenge because I had to, you know, Make oblique references to, to 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 what happened in Discovery, but but just tying it all together because it 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 does all work. It all it all. It, one of the things that impresses me about Star Trek in general yeah. is that it's, it's been going on for fifty four years now, and it's amazing how well most of it hangs together. Right. Given that you know the people who made it in none of the people who made it in the sixties are still alive anymore. You know, really, and. Um, Uh, and, and just so many different hands have been involved over the decades and it still hangs together remarkably well. It does. I think perfectly, obviously, but, but, but as well as can be expected given, you know, that we're talking about five and a half decades.
0: Right. I even liked, um, I mean, in this book, they even address the differences between TOS Klingons and TNG with the virus, especially the one that they showed in an enterprise. So it kind of covers all the bases, which is, which was really neat. Now, you said you played the Star Trek role-playing game back in, whether it was a college or high school. Yeah. Any chance you're going to be sharpening your Mecholeth and taking to the skies for glory and honor anytime soon?
1: Oh, probably not. Probably yeah, not. No Just the time? Um, I am I am working, I'm actually writing an adventure for, a Klingon-focused adventure. Fantastic. So um At least I hope I, well, I mean, I've, I've turned in the first draft of it. Um, yeah. You know, assuming it's not terrible. Um, it. Uh, it's called Incident at Krav 3. And um, hopefully that will that will come out sometime in 2021.
0: I am psyched to play it because I am uh, planning on doing uh, maybe a one-shot or uh, maybe a three-part series uh, for what we do here, running oh, so crazy games. We, we tend to have a more horror focus on everything we do. Yeah. Um, even if the game is not horror, we make it horror. But, you know, you say horror, and then you end up laughing a ton, and mm. it confuses the, uh, the well,
1: other well, the, people. Well, the plot of this one is a, a, a Klingon... Uh, manufacturing facility that has gone quiet. It actually, uh, it takes place in, and you can adjust it if you need to, but it, the, it nominally takes place in the very early 24th century, so not that long after Praxis was destroyed, and very early in the days oh, of the awesome. Federation Alliance. Um, and, and the reason for that is is that this is, this is a facility which was minor until Praxis exploded, and now it's become more important. And there's a team of Federation scientists who are upgrading it, and it's gone quiet. So the player's task is to go and find out what happened.
0: That's cool. I'm looking forward to that one, and uh, yeah.
1: And again, this is still I've, I've I've turned in the first draft. I have I am not that experienced. I've written one other role playing game, which was for the Firefly role playing game back in 2014. No way. Uh, and uh, yeah, I did a uh thing, a, a little uh, an adventure called Merciless, uh, which was in one of the one of the supplements for the Firefly RPG. Is it
0: like a one shot or is it like a short campaign?
1: Uh, no, it's it's a campaign. Yeah. Um. Uh, one of several that was in. It was a. They put out a supplement called Things Don't Go Smooth. Uh, that had a bunch of different campaigns in it, and, and Merciless is one of them.
0: So. Now, writing the the fiction parts for the Klingon core book, did you end up getting involved in any of the um, NPC characters that they have kind of in the back of the book? I mean, sometimes you'll see like no. the big no, ones other, like I, Martok I, and things.
1: No, other people did that. Okay, cool.
0: <laughs> so let's see. We talked a little bit about uh, your Star Trek novels with the IKS Gorgon. So we answered some of those. The alien species in that book that were, like I said, kind of like an interesting reflection, like a match made of heaven with them. um, You kind of showed like both sides of that conflict
1: really well. Um, Well, what I I wanted to do with the Santara was have because the Klingons aren't really a warrior culture because in practical terms you can't have a warrior culture because you still need somebody to like build the build the buildings and make the roads and grow the food and 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 clean up the mess. So but but the way it's set up is that the warriors are at the highest level of Klingon society and 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 the highest caste as it were. Um, So I wanted them to come across a species who, due to a quirk of the way their planet is set up, can actually be a pure warrior culture because the world provides everything they need. Right. Um, so they don't have, they don't have to deal with the compromises of having an empire. So it's just, they get to actually be a pure warrior culture and how the Klingons would react to that.
0: Which may have been what the Klingons w- would have been if they didn't have the Hark invasion and all other things yeah, kind of uh, disrupt them. I, I like what you did with them, especially because you know, and this is a book I read seven years ago and I still remember that they didn't have a word for peace, right? Right. And the yeah. Klingons are like, well, what have you been doing this so, time? You know, we come up with treating. They're like, what are you talking about? What, what is peace? Like, all we know is constant fighting because it's awesome. Yes. The Klingons yes. are just like <laughs> yeah. in love, right? Yeah. yeah. Um. Let's see. You did write on Alien, uh, which is yes! one of our favorite movie series, and now it's also a. Uh, tabletop game uh which is very fun because everyone wants to play in that universe what was it like running for such a beloved series
1: it was great especially because the the book i got to write was the isolation uh, tie-in exactly it was it was it was about two-thirds a novelization of the game alien isolation and one-third ripley family backstory oh no way that was a big part of the appeal i didn't Um, know that yeah so it it does follow the action of the game, which is about Amanda Ripley, who is Ellen Ripley's twenty at that point twenty five year old daughter, um, at a time between the first two Alien movies. So all anybody knows is that the Nostromo has disappeared and nobody knows what happened to it. Um, <laughs> and and Amanda has spent a large chunk of her life up to this point trying to find out what the hell happened to her mom, and so I've got. The, the game itself, which is her finding out that Sevastopol station, someone at Sevastopol station has the flight recorder for the Nostromo, mm-hmm. her going there. And she gets there to discover that whoever found the Nostromo's flight recorder also found um, a face hugger. And, and now there's an alien loose on the station and right. people are dying and horrible things are happening. And, uh, you know, if, as the player of the game, you're basically Amanda trying to not die. And, um, Several people uh, who found out that I wrote a novelization of the book said, so is the book entirely Amanda hiding in a closet? Because that's what I did when I played the game. Because
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a scary game. <laughs> it
1: really is. But but in addition to the main game story, I also provided flashbacks to Amanda's life, starting uh, from when she was a little kid all the way through to um, shortly before the game starts. And plus there's a bunch of stuff about Ellen Ripley's background, too, including uh, a mission she went on before uh, when she helped stop a mutiny before she was on Stromo."
0: That's really neat. Um, you know that aspect. We even—I mean—I've read some of the novels for Alien, but I don't recall there being too much about it. Uh, Ripley, aside from the movies,
1: maybe there were. There was. There were a couple. There was one called uh, "Out of the Darkness," "Out of the Shadows," yeah. something like that, um, which actually had uh, involved Ripley. Um, uh, I don't want to say too much because it would be spoilery but it was it was an interesting it was it was an opportunity to dig in and i actually used some of the material from that in my book as well so
0: that's awesome um your precinct series yes something that you created it's now yes. five books published two more on the way um tell us a little bit about it i i looked it up took a look and i was like this is fascinating it's like you took dungeons and dragons kind of fantasy and made it like a police procedural mystery?
1: Basically, yes. So, um, it it Torian and the, the two main characters are Torian Banwiveld and Danthris uh, who are actually both characters that I played in fantasy role-playing games in high school and college.
0: It's funny how often uh, that happens.
1: Yeah. Uh, Torian was a ranger uh, in, in a D&D campaign. Uh, Danthris was a half-elf warrior. And they're both characters who had very long lives as, as, as characters, uh, and who I just, I really liked them and really had fun with them. And I wanted to, and I, I started, I lost track of how many novels with the two of them I started, uh, that never went anywhere. And then I hit on the idea of them being cops. Um, cause I'm, I'm a huge fan of police procedural. Um, yeah. I, I grew up, you know, watching Hill Street Blues and Barney Miller, Um, I, I, among my favorite shows are The Shield and The Wire, uh, as well as the, you know, Hill Street Blues and Marty Miller. And, um, you know, I still watch the Law and Order shows all the time. I, 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 I'm a sucker for a good cop story. (laughs) And, uh, and I've had fun taking police procedure and putting it in fantastical settings. I've done it in some of my tie-in fiction too. Both my Spider-Man novels, uh, one of my Supernatural novels, um, Couple of others as well. I've and, and plus I've written. I wrote a CSI New York book as well, which uh, you yeah, know was was working in that in that uh, milieu. But I I enjoy writing about cops. And with the precinct series, I've I've basically taken your standard D and D type fantasy setting except the main characters are the, the members of the Cliffsend Castle Guards. So the main characters aren't the people going on the heroic quest. The people going on the heroic quest are the victims. And uh, in in the first book, it's, the it's best a party part. of adventurers are gathering in, and in you know, to go on an adventure, like the beginning of every d campaign yeah. ever, uh, and then one of them turns up dead. And so the main characters are torn and Dathras, who are assigned to solve this murder. Of, of Gan Brightblade, one of the great heroes of, of the world.
0: So. It's kind of like the uh, the lower decks of uh, before lower decks was an actual Star Trek show. Like the term <laughs> lower decks, where they're like the cleanup crew for the adventurers. Who uh, not
1: exactly? No, because because I mean that that's just one of the things I used that for the first book just because yeah. that was an easy template. But I, I play with a whole bunch of different fantasy tropes. Uh, each each one as each the main case in each book is 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 different and uses different you know. Elements. I noticed
0: that by the third one, um, which was Goblin Precinct. Yes, if I recall um yeah it was kind of like there was a a drug or some kind of potion
1: yeah going around yeah the the the, the way i worked it out is the city-state is divided into different regions uh dragon precinct being the middle class re- uh, district okay unicorn precinct was the second book that's a rich people uh and the difficulty of, of navigating that particular uh, uh set of circumstances um, Goblin Precinct is the slum, and that was a, a drug story where where uh, a wizard had created a, a particularly powerful drug. Excuse me. And then Griffin Precinct is the castle at the center of town, which is where the the lord and lady function and where the castle guard is. Uh, and that involved actually the death of of one of the people who run the city state. And then Mermaid Precinct is the docks. That's clever. And that involved the death that. of the pirate queen. And then what happened was I I the the my publisher fell into the swamp. And uh, another publisher picked up the series, Espec Books. At that point, I'd already published the first four, plus a short story collection called Tales from Dragon Precinct. And e was more than happy to pick up the series, but they wanted more than one book mm-hmm. that was theirs. Um, so at the beginning of Mermaid Precinct, I basically contrived a reason to create two more precincts. Uh, there was an influx of refugees from one of the other city-states because of a fire. So they basically built a new neighborhood. Uh, to accommodate all these people, a and that is now called Phoenix Precinct. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I thought so. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and then I also the I right? established that there's a prison barge. Yeah, there's a there's a prison barge, uh, which was originally uh, on its own. It wasn't. It was only a. Affi- it was only minorly affiliated with the Castle Guard. But one of the things the new Lord did in Mermaid Precinct was fold it into more formally into the Castle Guard. So the prison barge is now Manticore Precinct.
0: That is, that's, uh, and really it's basically weird.
1: an excuse for me to do a prison break story. So, nice. So there will be there will be those two more novels. Then after that, I'm out of precincts. I'm not sure what I'm going to do after that, but I'll have had seven novels by then. So well, you can go and explore we'll
0: the see. precincts you've I mean, already. There's will. always
1: more short stories. Yeah, there. there's
0: always more people in those yeah. precincts and uh, more mysteries to be asked yeah, we'll out, Right. Um, one of the characters I thought was really interesting, Cassie Zukov. Yes. Who is that's uh, a
1: that's niece. an urban fantasy character. She's um. She's a, a bit of a weird Miss Magnet. Um, she finds out in one story that she's actually a Norse fate goddess, much to her surprise. Yeah. I actually um, had to look
0: this up and I was surprised I had not heard of this particular mythological creature. And I was like, how did I miss this? This is fantastic.
1: <laughs> um, the, the, the stories, uh, the Cassie stories take place in Key West, Florida, which is the main reason why I tell them is because I love Key West and it's a perfect mm-hmm. place to tell urban fantasy stories. Um, and she, weird stuff happens to her uh, partly because she's a Norse fate goddess so she has dealt with nixies and various gods and water fay and um, uh, a, a musician who steals people's souls and uh, and other fun stuff so I've, I've written she I've only written her in short fiction yeah. um, I've uh, the first nine stories are in a collection called Ragnarok rock' and roll uh, I recently crowdfunded uh, a couple stories. One was the Dragon Precinct story and one was the Cassie Zukov story. I've written the Precinct story. I still have to write the other, the Cassie one. The Cassie one is going to be called Ragnarok in a Hard Place. And once that one's written, I will have enough stories to do a second collection, which will also be called Ragnarok in a Hard Place. Um, and all the stories I've written since 2013 will all go into that collection. Nice. Now, you,
0: pulling from all these different mythologies, um, what are some of the other ones you've, you've pulled from uh, besides
1: Norse? Um, the, for, for, for the Cassie stories, um, I did, there's a mermaid story, um, mm. which actually uses, um, some Norse versions of, of, of mermaids, but, but also, uh, it's actually based on one of the old, uh, child ballads, uh, called That's The Mermaid. Cool. Um, what else have I, uh, I did, oh, oh, there's also, some of them involve actual Key West stuff, including, um, the a story called William did it, which is based on, there's a, there's a little doll called Robert the doll, uh, which is currently at, uh, one of the museums in Key West. And it's this, this really, really creepy doll, uh, that was owned by, by one of the people who lived on Key West back in the early part of the 20th century. And, and Robert the doll is believed to have magical powers. Um, and so I played with that legend and, and, and did, did a version of it. It was called William the doll in this case, but, um, but Cassie has an encounter with, with that.
0: It's uh, such a bizarre thing to have in like a little museum, right? Just to creep out tourists. It's almost like a, a draw yeah, to go yeah. there. right? There's
1: all sorts of like, you know, things like, like apparently like bad luck comes to you if you're not nice to the doll um, <laughs> and all sorts of other stuff. And QS and is full of stories like that. You know um, there's, there's all kinds of, of entertaining legends and and, and stories and things.
0: No wonder you like it.
1: And yeah, it's like, it's like it's, writer fodder, right? It's Oh yeah, 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 totally is. Um, you know, Cassie's Cassie's supported cast includes several Norse gods, um, an immortal uh who hangs out at the bar, who stays immortal as long as he never goes to sleep. So he's at the bar all the time drinking coffee and soda. Um <laughs> there's uh, a federal agent uh who's who she's not really dating, but they have this weird flirting thing going on. Uh the ghost of an old record captain who lives at the B and B where she lives and works. Uh, and who only she can see and hear. Um, and, and, and bunch of other characters it's, it's, and, and the members of the house band of one of the bars in old town. So
0: that's some good stuff. I'm, I'm looking forward to I those. Hope so
1: Yeah. It's, um, the, the stories are a lot of fun. They, they, I really enjoy them.
0: If you enjoy writing them I and mean, that's, that's even, yeah, that's yeah. Doing what you love is obviously yes. very important. I could actually see, um, D D fans taking, uh, reading those books and running them as campaigns. It sounds like I mean, yeah. half the time. That's all you need is uh characters. Yeah. And, uh, I was talking
1: with or. a gaming company about doing a game based on the pre. Um, but nothing ever came of it. Uh, it still may happen. There was some other stuff that happened with, yeah. the, with the company that, that and it never went forward, but we'll see.
0: I'll try again. The mark yeah. tabletop role-playing has kind of exploded. So you never know, oh, yeah. Yeah. especially with, uh, what's going on. It's like, yeah. Uh, a lot of people playing online these days, too. So oh, yeah. It's a bit, no. uh, well, thank you for everything and, and talking with me about all these uh, cool literary projects and uh, geekdom. Is there anything else you want to promote that you might be working on uh, that we can look forward to?
1: I've got, well, I'm currently working on, um, I've, got a, I've got another urban fantasy series uh, that takes place here in New York City. Uh, it's called the, the Brom Gold Adventures, which is about a guy from the Bronx who hunts monsters for a living. Uh, the first book came out in 2019. It was called A Furnace Sealed, and that's available from Wordfire Press. I am currently working on book two, which is called Feet of Clay, uh, which I'm hoping oh. to have. That should be out in 2021. Uh, I'm also working on the next Precinct book, which is Phoenix Precinct. Um, right now, uh, just released is a novel called To Hell and Regroup, which is a collaboration I did with David Sherman. That's a military science fiction novel. Uh, it's the third book in David's 18th Race Trilogy, which is about uh, an alien invasion of a human colony uh in the in the future and in response to that invasion the north american union uh army navy and marines go to fight back david wrote the first two books i was actually the editor uh on those first two books Uh, i still do a lot of freelance editing Mm -hmm. uh even, even though i'm not on staff anywhere anymore uh and for various and sundry personal health reasons, David was unable to complete book three. And since I edited the first two books, he asked me to work with him to finish uh, the final book. That's great. You're um, able to help him that. Yeah. And he, he was very, he, he was very happy with the work I did. Um, And I think, I think his fans will be happy as well. I tried very much to stay in, in, in his style and his mode. Um, And, and, and finish the story as he would have wanted to have finished it.
0: How's his health? Um, Has he improved?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, Good he's he's not a young man it's just he he's not as comfortable right he he was a marine who served in vietnam right um and it just it's gotten to the point where he just doesn't want to write about military engagements anymore and i can't really bring myself to blame him, right um, no, I am, obviously so uh he's he's sticking with like fun fantasy stuff now. You know? <laughs> and uh and then i've got a, a thriller coming out at the beginning of 2021 um called animal which is another collaboration it's written with uh dr manish k batra um and it's it's about a serial killer who targets people who harm animals so it's kind of like dexter if Peter had created it um <laughs> that that will be available for pre-order around the i believe on the 18th of november is when we're going to put that
0: up. sounds like a hero
1: <laughs> uh, yes and no I but that, thats part of the, the fun of the story, is okay. yeah. The, the tagline for it is "Who is the real animal?" Um, that's and, clever. Uh, I like that. And Manish and I are working on some other projects together as well. Uh, I just finished a, a manuscript that he and I worked was a medical thriller, which uh, our agent is now shopping around. And um, uh, and and we're thinking about possibly doing a sequel to Animal as well. And uh, and what else? I've got. I'm still writing for Tor.com. Uh, currently, I am doing a rewatch of Star Trek Voyager. Um, What's season is in the middle. I'm in the middle of the fourth season right now. Good stuff. Um, I'm reviewing each new episode of all the new uh, Star Trek shows. Uh, currently reviewing each new episode of Discovery as they come out. Uh, and if you and on the site there are my reviews of all the previous episodes of Discovery, all the episodes mm-hmm. of Short Treks, all the Picard episodes, and the Lower Decks episodes we've had so far. Plus, also on Tor.com is all the other stuff we were talking about before, the rewatches. I rewatched the original series, Next Generation, and Deep Space Nine, now doing Voyager. Yes. I will probably do Enterprise when I'm done with Voyager, because I may as well complete the set.
0: <laughs> you know, you'll, you'll regret it if you don't. It'll be one of those personal things where Yeah, you know I it's could
1: like, have done I, I, that. It, right? Yeah, it, 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 it would turn it into a gap tooth smile. I just want to you know, cover everything. Uh, and I write a lot of other stuff for Tor.com as well. I also have a Patreon, uh, where I write other TV and movie reviews. Uh, I do excerpts for my works in progress. Uh, I have also been writing little vignettes featuring my original characters. So there's Cassie Zukov vignettes, Bram Gold vignettes, precinct vignettes. Um, and also I have another uh, poli- uh, fantastical police procedural called Super City Cops, which is about cops in a city filled with superheroes. Um, I've got one novel yeah, and a bunch of that. short stories and novellas uh, in that universe. And I've done some vignettes with that as well. Um, the Patreon is really cheap. It's uh, it's at patreon.com slash crad. And uh, the the highest tier is twenty dollars a month, and that gets you everything. And for for ten dollars, you can get the vignettes and some other stuff. It it's cheap at half the price, and you get really nifty TV reviews, movie reviews, excerpts, looks at my first drafts, the vignettes, and best of all, cute cat pictures. <laughs> um, we have very photogenic cats. Um, you must even I mean... I mean, being destructive as they were earlier in the interview, but uh, so all that can be found on my Patreon. So so you should definitely check that out. And um, and I've got the the Star Trek Adventures thing and some other stuff probably as well. Oh, uh, there's an anthology coming out from ESPEC Books called Horns and Halos, mm-hmm. uh, which I've got a short story in. I've got a few other short stories that came out this year, including one in Badass Moms. And my wife, friend Sims, and I are going to be putting together an anthology that we're hoping to start the crowdfund for soon. We've had some delays, which are mostly uh, pandemic-related, unfortunately. Um, but it's going to be called The Four Somethings of the Apocalypse
0: fantastic
1: um, so uh, we've got a good lineup of authors who are going to contribute to that so
0: so i will uh back, like, i will post a link in the show notes for your patreon so people thank you can watch this it. on demand can check it out you can follow mr keith already yeah, i can't even talk keith already canada on uh twitter and yeah you've got a pretty good website with uh all the things you've kind of got going on and um and i
1: update my blog regularly i'm a regular presence on facebook and uh occasional presence also on twitter and on instagram as well
0: so fantastic well thank you
1: for joining me today
0: uh keith My pleasure. i'm very excited to see some of your future works um seeing if maybe you've got some more stuff going on with star trek adventures and uh especially Oops. that klingon uh campaign yeah. you're gonna be writing so we'll stay tuned for that thank you so much for joining me but i guess uh that's us for tonight thanks again
1: keith thanks a lot rick Thank you for listening to the Gehenna Gaming Podcast. Your attention has been noted. You can find us online at GehennaGaming.com, on Twitter at GehennaGaming, Twitch.tv slash GehennaGaming, and Patreon.com slash GehennaGaming.